grace, mercy, peace be multiplied to each of you in the certain knowledge that Jesus has destroyed the power of death, devil, and that your own sin held over you. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, it's, it's harder for some of us than others. Obviously, you'll recognize immediately this, this solemn declaration that something is beyond salvage, that it is beyond repair. Most of you know me well enough to know that I find it very difficult. Everything can be used somehow, some way, maybe, I am therefore in the solidly next to impossible camp whether result of nature or nurture I don't know but I tend to be if not granted help from you all in the junk business. It's interesting how people that are like that are content to give something away to somebody else, even knowing that they're going to throw it away, but you just feel better. I didn't throw it away. I gave it away. Some of you heard how, for whatever reason, individuals seem to think that we're not. Uh, I remember one of my colleagues told me that he heard a knock on the door one day and somebody had backed up to his door and said, Pastor, I was on the way to the dump to throw this couch away, but then I thought you might want it. He did. <laughs> now, obviously, this can be sort of amusing, and some of you, maybe it's frustrating to see the pastor's collection of stuff here and there, but it turns deadly serious, doesn't it, when we talk about beyond repair or beyond salvage or human souls human beings. There it's not so funny talking about throwing somebody an eternal soul even just mentally on the scrap heap. Our text alludes to this if we're wise. If we see and hear with the ears of faith. That's where this declaration of beyond repair takes a dramatically significant that text that will guide and instruct us this morning is found in Mark's Gospel, the ninth chapter, beginning with the ninth verse. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long 
Has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word, pure, powerful, true, the very words of God. That our God would, through these his words, guide, instruct, strengthen us, so we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is true. Amen. Our text draws that razor-sharp knife of the law across our hearts first this morning, doesn't it? With the realization that you and I have been guilty of declaring human souls beyond saying their rescue. Instead of the demon-possessed boy in our text, how many in that boy's circle of life and his father's circle of life had written him off as beyond salvage, beyond repair, something that you didn't even want to look at, something to be avoided? Humanly speaking, hard to fault them. When you hear what is actually being said in our text and how for we don't know exactly how long he was still a boy, which was anything under 18. And yet since childhood, he could have been for a decade or more, he could have been being tormented by this evil spirit. And we read that it convulsed him, it threw him into water, it threw him into fire. So here's what you're looking at. Probably a scarred, filthy wreck of a human being. And the passage of time means this is just how it's going to be for this human being. How difficult to look on that spectacle and separate human from demon. The dark malevolence that, that had possessed him from the soul that had been possessed. We know that there's one who didn't give up. One in that crowd that Jesus approached hadn't tossed him on the scrap heap of humanity. One who was able to see the boy, and that was, of course, 
his father, able to see not what they saw, but maybe to remember back to his childhood and to see what was, to see what could be in his mind. He, when he looked at that wreckage, didn't see the demon. He saw his son. Those that didn't look with the eyes of love saw something altogether different, didn't they? They saw, again, human debris, something easily categorized as beyond salvage, beyond help. Do you understand why? It was more than physical appearance. It was the very basis of their unbelief, because they believed then that what happens to you is a result of your standing before God. So clearly, you'd done something terrible. This boy has you have, it doesn't matter. God was doing this to that child. And as the basis of their faith plan, or their salvation plan, which was, we need to keep the law perfectly, and then we earn our way into heaven, if this child or his father had sinned, they'd already failed. Therefore, let's not bother. They were good at that, weren't they? They were good at the scrap heap. They were good at beyond repair. They weren't about fixing human souls. They were about discarding, avoiding, not being troubled by them. They were about criticizing others who spent any time on them. If this man knew what manner of woman it was who touched him, he can't be a man of God. Remember Jesus' description of them? They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. In other words, if their plan for salvation was keep the law perfectly, that's a heavy burden. More than just hard, impossible to bear and lay them, these burdens, on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We cannot know, it really doesn't matter, if Jesus' disciples tried to heal this boy. We just hear the Father's plea. Fix him. I beg you, this is my son. Interesting that after their failure, an argument broke out. And we hear that the scribes were there. Scribes seem to always be around. And they were arguing, and perhaps other arguments among the rest. What do you suppose was the nature of those arguments? Can you imagine how they would use this as evidence against not only the disciples, but Jesus himself. So you're Jesus' followers, huh? And you supposedly have all this power. There's one simple boy, and you can't heal him. Clearly, then, not only do you not have the power you claim to have, but the one that you follow must be a fraud. If you're casting out in Jesus' name and it can't be done, hmm, you can imagine how the discussions went. Again, this were, these were among those in the camp of beyond salvage, easily labeled. Sin in the Pharisees' eyes rendered a human being beyond repair. What did Jesus see? It's Jesus saw what he always sees. 
the human soul. If you read again through the, especially the Gospels with that in mind, just that one thought in mind, it opens up so many things. Jesus didn't look at, yes, he saw hungry people, sick, crippled, but he always saw the soul. And he had the advantage, of course, because he came from heaven, knew for a fact that there was a hell, and, and could see how different this was, the wreckage of life here on earth from the perfection of heaven. You hear his frustration. How long am I going to have to be here with you? That gives us a window if we look, doesn't it? Because Jesus saw, yes, this poor suffering child. But you know what else he saw? He saw universal wreckage. Universal beyond salvage. Universal, humanly speaking. Universally condemnable. Scrap heap material. Because he wasn't fooled by the outward. Those in the crowd could look at this, this, this poor, obviously defigured over so many years of being beaten about by this demon, and they could make their own judgments. But Jesus saw that that one was just like that one, just like that one, and that one. Because all were born dead in trespasses and sins. All, in that sense, were beyond salvage, because all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So where human beings would see a whole bunch of people and then this thing, Jesus saw everybody in need. He saw a reality that others could not see. He saw the day of judgment always in the backdrop. And that's why he was able to forgive even while terrible things were being done to him. He prayed for Judas, reached out to him right up until the end. He prayed for those as they were driving the nails through his hands, the soldiers. As he himself was being led away unjustly, he prayed for those women, probably paid weepers, who came behind him. Don't. Weep for me. I'm actually in good shape. Weep for yourselves. And then why? He said, because there's going to come a day when having the hills cover you will be preferable to standing where you will have to stand before a holy, righteous God. So the question that then we need to ask ourselves, given this text, is how do we see those around us? How do we look at them? What do we see when our eyes behold? I think most often we're fooled, aren't we? In a variety of different ways. Because we tend to also, if we see human wreckage, and you know what it looks like, we tend to see beyond repair. But when we see somebody driving a nice car with nice clothes and pulling a nice boat or whatever, and we may sort of think of them as, well, they need to go to church or they need to hear about their Savior too, but it tend to be somebody who, yes, and I wouldn't mind helping them with that. That's the knife blade of the law in our text. 
that we aren't above the sins that we see in our text. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What do you make of that? It's an interesting it's an interesting sentence that our God records for us. He was obviously in great pain. We have empathy for him. And as most fathers know, I'm sure he would have gladly traded places. I don't I've never met a dad, a good dad who wouldn't or mom gladly trade places with a suffering child. But what do you understand by, I believe, help my unbelief? Specifically, what was he asking of Jesus? Most of us think that he was saying, well, I believe, but I have my doubts, and would you please fix those? Would you erase those? Maybe, but I don't think so. What he was asking in faith is, I believe that you can do this. I have my doubts. Please help my son anyway. Because Jesus had put it on him. And he picked at that part of his request, didn't he? Where he said, if you can. And Jesus' response was striking. If I can? He wanted to draw attention to that. If I can? This is the very Son of God. And a human being, helplessly asking for help, is looking at the Son of God and asking, If you can? Now Jesus was always teaching as he's teaching here. He wanted to make sure that this crowd that was gathering heard and understood. This isn't a human being. Just, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. So he begins, if you can, with that incredulous response. And then he directs it backwards, doesn't he? All things are possible for one who believes. That's when the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. I think what happened here is that Jesus turned this around. In other words, the man didn't say, I believe, yeah, I have my doubts, but help me with those. It's Jesus turned this man around to direct all of his things to God, all of his requests, all of his needs, put it on the Lord. That's why at the end of this text, why couldn't we, the disciples asked, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus responds, this kind is only fixed or helped or saved through prayer. Cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus is pointing that arrow back to himself. This man had to realize, if I can is the wrong approach. Access the power of God. It's possible that the disciples had become too enamored with their own power. And I'd be reminded at this point, it's only through Jesus' power. Prayer is that which accesses God's power. Again, forcing them back to see that. Where you and I would 
like to believe that we would have been different. I know we often tend to see ourselves in the right part of the crowd. If there was a crowd that understood, it's like in a movie, we like to see ourselves as the hero, not the coward or the sniveling weirdo or whatever. We'd like to see ourselves as those who knew, and it's like, how could you think that? And how could you think that? And you and I, Jesus, I wonder. No, I don't. Not really, because we're so, we find it so easy to, to, after the fact, like the guy who reads the questions on Jeopardy, knowing the answers, can look so smart, and we have these after the fact, and we can look after the fact and say, huh, how could you think there would be a kingdom on earth? We still have trouble recognizing the value of every single human soul. We still have value not, or problems not categorizing individuals as sort of a spiritual triage where you bring them in and it's like, no, nope, this one's gone, nope, that one's gone, oh, mm, critical, bring that guy in. And, well, that guy actually, you know, he's got, he's, I've been to his summer cabin and his winter home in Vail, and he's, yeah, he's, well, he's probably okay. We'll put him last. We do that unconsciously maybe, but we do. And the reality that Jesus teaches us here and elsewhere is that, humanly speaking, every single individual is beyond salvage, is beyond repair, because they're dead in trespasses and sins, unable to offer one thing in their defense and in the payment of their sin debt, nothing. And that's why it always points back to Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who saw things as they really were. You have nothing. That's why I'm here. I came to pay your sin debt, which you could never hope to pay. I'm the one, through doing what I'm doing, never once sinning, and then about to offer that life on the cross of Calvary, I'm the one who wins payment for all of your sins. I'm the one who takes you from wretched, mass of unrepairable, and I make you the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit who lives in you. When I bring you to faith, the Holy Spirit does through the Word. I'm the one who transforms you from a child of Satan and an heir of hell to a child of God and an heir of heaven. The only hope that we have in this life and certainly in the next, the only hope that we have is despairing of ever providing anything that we need, anything and turning, as Jesus directed here, away from ourselves to the God who can. The Savior who has done all things perfectly. The Savior who has taken each of you irreparable, reprobates. And he has lifted us from that status and made us his children. Our simple prayer this morning, thank you, Jesus for not dismissing us as beyond repair. Amen.